I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So we're back, week on from the autumn statement. I have to say I've had a bit of a rough week. I went to the dentist on Monday and uh, it turns out the root canal, which was first done two years after Tony Blair became prime minister, has finally given up the ghost or fractured deep inside. I had to go to the dentist yesterday, have a whole tooth out. Quite painful. Well, at least it lasted longer than new labour then. It did. I was actually at the dentist this morning, or the hygienist rather, and... Um I bumped into Paul Dacre in the uh, reception. I've always rather admired Paul. I don't agree with the uh, editorial line he's often taken, but the way he edits the paper, I was asking him what, what he was in for, and he said, well, you know, I've been gnawing my teeth on the bones of politicians for recent decades. He certainly has. <laughs> but he certainly has been doing that. And he, he did have a go at me, or not a go at me, he said, why do the BBC keep calling them the Parthenon sculptures when they're the Elgin marbles? Actually, I, I call them the Elgin Marbles too. These are the uh, the famous bits of stone that come from the Acropolis, now in the British Museum, and have been in the news uh, this week. Look, we can't have the, the chair of the British Museum here and not talk about that. But we're going to talk about Rishi Sunak's week and why, you know, rather than focusing on the aftermath of his autumn statement, it's all been overshadowed by this big row and also James Cleverly, the new Home Secretary's row, about um, the Rwanda deal with his uh, backbenchers. So we're going to talk about that and then we're going to talk about what I think the government wanted to talk about this week, which was investment into the UK. They had a big uh, summit at the beginning of the week of business leaders. Uh, but the OECD, one of those important international bodies that looks at the economy, has just said that British economic growth is really poor. We're going to look at what are the underlying causes of that and whether Labour have any answers or are they in fact coming under quite a lot of pressure on their economic plans too at the moment. And then uh, something that people may have missed, there was a story in the Times earlier in the week, which was about the fact that the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, is off um, ill and therefore missing the COVID inquiry. But it said within that that he had asked the Prime Minister to start the talks with the opposition, the official talks between the civil service and the opposition, which happened normally in the year or so before the election. And the Times said that Rishi Sunak had said no to that, although... It also said maybe Labour didn't want to have those talks. And we thought we'd talk about whether or not those talks are important. And we've both been there going to see the permanent secretary to the Treasury with the prospect of being the chancellor. In your case, a prospect which became reality. So we're going to talk about that. Of course, the other thing this week, um, just had the news overnight that uh, Henry Kissinger has died. And I know we both knew him really quite well. You hosted a birthday party for him just recently. Yeah, this uh, this summer. So it's obviously very, very sad news that he has died. But he had an incredible life. 
people thought he was cynical, that he was a practitioner of realpolitik. But as a German Jew who had had to flee Germany, I think he understood that ideology and idealism could lead to tragedy. And he saw stability as the way of protecting people's lives. And he used to always ask me this question, which is, what's going to happen next? If you do this, have you thought through the consequences? And so often that doesn't happen in global affairs. And that's what made him a really extraordinary statesman. What's often also forgotten is he had you know, pretty extraordinary uh, private life as well. He was very happily married towards the end, but he was a bit of a playboy when he was younger. And uh, he went to the Godfather premiere, um, dated a Bond girl, Jill St. John, tried to chat up Zsar Zsar Gabor. So um, for, for someone who started off as a young German Jew in southern uh, Bavaria uh, 100 years ago, he lived a pretty extraordinary life. And I was very lucky that he sort of took me under his wing a bit and became something of a mentor. I only met him in his 90s, so um, I didn't really see the playboy side of him. And obviously there were these these big moments of controversy, uh, as there are for you know, every American S- Secretary of State or President or advisor. And you know, think about um, all the different um, issues there's been, as you said, Chile, but then Grenada in the 1980s for Reagan, all the way through to um, Guantanamo um, under the... Um, Bush and the Democrat presidencies as well. The thing I thought about Kissinger when I met him was that he's quite unusual in this sense. There are some leaders who see politics in quite a messianic way. It's about the individual and their their ability to change the course of history. Tony Blair was quite a messianic politician. And there are some leaders who see things as uh, in a very intellectual way about ideas and the shaping of history and how you understand that to, to change the world. And Kissinger, I think, was really unusual, not just because he was a pragmatist, but he understood both the power of ideas and history and also the power of the individual to change the course of history. And I think that's actually why he was such a brilliant advisor and a great person to talk to in his, in his later life, because he could both tell you why the flow of history was going in that direction, but also how individuals could step in and, and intervene. And you know, it's not a surprise to me, having spoken to him, that he was an advisor to so many American presidents because he had a particularly unusual ability to, to explain and, and also see the future. Well, he was very much in the future business. So when I hosted a lunchroom in London this summer, people wanted to ask him questions about meeting Mao Zedong or winning the Nobel Peace Prize. But if you ever went to his apartment in New York, as I did... He didn't have photos of these things. And what he wanted to talk about was the future. He wanted to talk about the regulation of artificial intelligence or what was going on in Ukraine. And I remember he threw this incredible dinner party for me with all these big figures from New York society there, like Mike Bloomberg. And then I turned up with my private secretary at the time, someone called Claire Lombardelli, who we're actually going to talk about later in this podcast because she's now chief economist at the OECD. And he started talking to Claire, who's you know, much younger than most other people at that dinner. And then I saw him go off to the dinner part, to the dinner table, where, which had plasmos and people's names. And I saw him move Mike Bloomberg away from being next to him and put Claire Lombardelli next to him. So he, was, he always had an eye for the young talent. He did. Um, I wonder what he would have thought this week about our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak picking a fight with the Greek Prime Minister in London about um, the Elgin Marbles and causing such a diplomatic furore as a consequence of that. I wonder if Kissinger would have thought that was good diplomacy. We'll talk about that next. So the week after the autumn statement, and on Monday we had the investment conference, a big gathering of investors and financiers and business people from around the world who the government is bringing to London to try and say invest in the UK. But actually ended up being an unusual week for Rishi Sunak because he wasn't talking about the things we thought he'd want to talk about. He's ended up not just in a row um, with his backbenchers about migration and his Rwanda deal with the new Home Secretary James Cleverly, but also this massive diplomatic row with the Greeks over the cancelling of the Greek Prime Minister's meeting with Rishi Sunak on Monday because the Greek Prime Minister had said the wrong things the day before on the Koonsberg programme. Well, the first thing is, I should say, as chair of the British Museum, that whether the British Prime Minister meets the Greek Prime Minister or not is not directly relevant to what we're trying to do. Uh, So the British Museum was set up 
250 odd years ago to be independent of the government. The trustee body is independent. And when we act within the law, we do so independently. And we're not seeking a change of the law. And in this vexed issue of what should happen to the Elgin marbles, the sculptures that went around the Acropolis in ancient Greece, I've been exploring with the Greek government on behalf of the museum whether some kind of deal can be reached whereby they spend part of their time in Athens and part of their time in London, and we have Greek treasures coming our way in return. And that is, a, I think, something worth exploring. And we can go on doing it, whether or not Rishi Sunak meets the Greek Prime Minister or not. In fact, if anything, things have been rather clarified by this week. We obviously know we're not going to get any particular support from the Conservative government. But in fact, the Labour uh, leader, Keir Starmer, also said that whilst he supported the British Museum's efforts, he wasn't planning to change the law. And if you don't change the law, then there's no prospect anytime soon of them just being restituted to Greece, returned with nothing, you know, just simply handed back, which anyway wouldn't be a decision for the museum. And so, to my mind, as chair of the British Museum, it's all the more reason to press on with our efforts to try and reach an agreement with the Greeks. Hard to do, lots of history there, but uh, I think worth trying. And do you think you can succeed? Well, you know, I would say it's 50-50. I mean, there's a reason why for 200 years people have been arguing about this. They were controversial when they arrived in this country uh, in the early 19th century. Lord Byron, the famous poet, argued against them coming here. But Parliament decided to buy them off Lord Elgin, who was the ambassador, the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire at the time. And so they've been, you know, there's a reason why no one's found a solution. But I'm working hard with the Greek government to try and find that solution. Who knows? I think if there's goodwill, we'll get a breakthrough. Um, but, you know, as as I say, we don't want the law changed. And so we don't need either the Conservative Prime Minister or the Labour leader uh, to weigh in, particularly. I mean, it seems to me that over past decades, there was a problem for the British Museum or for the British government because valuable artefacts um, in the past, there would have been a worry whether or uh, them being in Greece for some or all of the time would have led to them being damaged or uh, undermined or something could go wrong. Really hard to say that now about the modern Greek state. I was actually in, in Athens just a few weeks ago meeting antiquarians. I think that's the right word. Uh, or archaeologists. Or God knows all who, begins with that. They, they, in Athens. They seem pretty good and they knew what they were doing. And you don't think to yourself, these artefacts are going to be damaged by being held in Greece for some or all of the time. But... Standing back from the detail of what you're kind of negotiating, quite why Rishi Sunak chose to pick this fight in this way, it's kind of baffling. I mean, I think back to the time when I was in the Treasury with Gordon Brown, uh, or seeing him in number 10. I mean, lots of times he would have been worrying about a big domestic issue or a big problem he had to face. And somebody would have said, you've got to have a meeting with a visiting prime minister or finance minister. And they might have said, and they've also said something slightly inconvenient in their press conference the um, day before. And Gordon would have said, cancel it. And you always needed somebody in the room to say, you know, don't be an effing idiot. I mean, we're not going to cancel our meeting with that prime minister because it's not convenient for you or they said something a bit inconvenient. And Gordon would always shrug his shoulders and say, fine, fine, let's get it done. Why did nobody say to Rishi Sunak at that moment, it's a crazy thing to do to pick this fight, unless, I guess, were they thinking that this was in their political interest to have this fight? Well, you know, often in life, in politics, people say it's a conspiracy when basically it's a cock-up. And, you know, I think if you look at this, it's not clear to me why number 10 were not expecting the Greek Prime Minister to raise the Elgin marbles. Mitsotakis, the Greek Prime Minister, has raised the Elgin marbles every time he's come to Britain. And he's then gone on to have meetings with Prime Ministers like Boris Johnson. In fact, if anything, Mitsotakis, Harvard educated, quite Anglophile, is is quite similar to Rishi Sunak. Curiously, they probably wouldn't acknowledge it today, but they're quite sort of similar in international elite individuals. He's very good on TV. We've had, very, very fluent We've had him on TVs. Good Morning Britain. He's an excellent person to talk to. Right. So I don't know what they were expecting. And I certainly had no idea he was going to cancel the meeting with the Greek Prime Minister. It came completely as news to me. And um, everyone then kind of, everyone was sort of asking for my reaction, which I said, wait for, wait for our podcast. But I did try and find out what was going on. And I heard various theories from my, my friends and some were saying, oh, it's a deliberate strategy to distract attention from the migration route. It's what's called a dead cat strategy, to use a, 
a phrase sometimes deployed in politics, which is you turn people's attention away from a, a row you're having by literally putting a kind of, more metaphorically rather, putting a dead cat on the table. So that's one uh, theory. Another theory is that he's appealing to the red wall. These are the kind of former Labour seats in the north. Although the idea that red wall voters in Hartlepool or Sedgefield or wherever are like really concerned about what happens to Pericles's uh, ancient uh, statues and I suspect they're rather more concerned, as someone put it earlier today, about whether they can get a GP appointment before Christmas. So I'm not sure it's a brilliant red wall strategy. I mean, the, the, uh, the polls say the large majority of people either don't care or say return them. I mean, the actual people who really care about keeping them is a small minority. There may be quite a few of them on the Conservative backbenchers, but they're not very many voters who think like that. Yeah. So then you, then you ask the question, is it just petulance? You know, is it just having a bit of a hissy fit? And I think if if that's the reason, it's be, not because Mitsotakis was going to raise the Elgin marbles. It's because he had met Keir Starmer the day before. And I think in number 10, I remember being there in 96, 97, you can sort of feel the power start to drain from the building when you're getting close to an election, which people think you're not going to win. And uh, I thought, you know, what Rishi Sunak did was open the door, you know, you know and this was definitely not what he should have done to a pretty devastating line of attack from Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions this week. Let's hear what uh, Keir Starmer said. I discussed with the Greek Prime Minister the economy, security, immigration. I also told him we wouldn't change the law regarding the marbles. It's not that difficult, Prime Minister. And this was uh, Rishi Sunak's response. Look, Mr Speaker, no one will be surprised that he's backing an EU country over Britain. Just this last week he was asked... Just this last week, just this last week, he was asked which song best sums up the Labour Party. What did he come up with? Well, Mr Speaker, he showed his true colours and chose Ode to Joy, literally the anthem of the European Union. And he will back, he will back Brussels over Britain every single time. So first of all, Ode to Joy is a wonderful piece of music, which I had at my wedding earlier this year, as you know, you were in the audience, in the uh, congregation. But, you know, you listen to those two, which one sounded like the Prime Minister? It was Keir Starmer talking about the conversations with the Greek Prime Minister about important international issues. And, you know, it's the it's Sunak who's deploying the kind of cheap points. And I thought that's such a mistake because Rishi Sunak, you know, who I let me, you know, I'll say it again and again and again. I think he's a good prime minister. I go to bed at night and wake up in the morning, pleased that someone is sensible and serious doing that job in number 10 after several years when that's not been the case. Um, and and he should be doubling down on being the serious person who meets, of course, meets another European leader when they're in town to discuss things like Ukraine or the energy crisis or migration, all of which Greece is relevant to. Uh, and I, it, it just shows, again, that they, they're not focused on delivering a coherent strategy week after week after week, which is the Conservatives' only chance of getting back into this political fight. See, I find it really hard to understand why he picked this row um, and also why they've got into such a mess over migration uh, again over the last five days in the Rwanda plan with his backbenchers. I mean, on the one hand, you look at him and think that actually the pressure is getting to him. The nature of the Sunak premiership, I think, has been to to suck power and decision-making into number 10, to make it you know, about him and his brand. And of course, what that means is that if things then don't go so well, the pressure is on you. And the autumn statement was supposed to turn things around. The polls say it hasn't. And frustrated, kind of angry, why isn't it getting better? And there was some, some lashing out. And whether that is just... Um, him finding things hard, or maybe it's worse than that, which is that in the end, he's just not very good at this politics game because you would have thought after the autumn statement he'd be doubling down on his message. And what is his big message? It's not simply that he's cut national insurance or um, that he's getting the economy to grow. The bigger message is after the chaos and incoherence of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson in number 10, I'm back stability, a big shift from the chaos of those times, contrast the COVID inquiry and all, you know, the shenanigans and chaos and bad language which we're seeing in that to the stability of my premiership. And instead, it looks as chaotic this week as it did 
two years ago in a different uh, setting and uh, in the same way that he's lurched around over the last couple of weeks, first of all, criticising the last 30 years, then bringing David Cameron back. And uh, politics is about knowing who you are and what you believe in, having a strategy to deliver, which is consistent with who you are and what you believe in, and then being consistent and then doing things which make people see that is your strategy and it's based upon principle and belief. It feels as though that isn't what he's doing at the moment. He's like lurching around all over the place. Well, you know, the two key words here are discipline and patience, particularly when you're behind. You know, when, when you're ahead, you can get away with, um, you know, a bit of sort of free form each week and your political strategy. But in order to turn things around, he has to hammer home this economic message that he can be trusted on the economy, that uh, people are going to start to get better off under his government, and that uh, all of that would be put at risk uh, under Labour. There are certain rows he can't avoid, which are um, things like the row on immigration. You see, I think there, James Cleverly, the the new Home Secretary, I think was trying this week to say, look, Rwanda's not the be-all and end-all, because otherwise they're putting too many of their chips on this one piece on the board. He said that in a Times interview <laughs> last Saturday, right. but it's caused consternation on the backbenchers. Right. So again, that's a manoeuvre, which is we shouldn't be doubling down on Rwanda because we're probably going to lose these court judgments next year, or we might do. And we, you know, we've got to try and convince people we've got an immigration plan that doesn't just rely on sending people to Rwanda uh, before the general election. Uh, that creates a row. And you've got Robert Jenrick, who's the immigration minister, very competent, very capable, suddenly emerging from being one of those sort of middle-ranking people you can kind of rely on to put on the Today programme and not screw up, to potentially now, my gosh, he might actually be a future leader. And he's marking his cards by saying, uh, by the way, I've been telling everyone we should be cutting immigration, and I had a plan two Christmases ago, which uh, you know haven't been, which I haven't had the chance to implement. So. Th- I don't think, you know, it'd be easy to avoid the immigration row at the moment in the Conservative Party. But even with that, you should be trying to keep focus on the economy. What you definitely should not be doing is lurching around with spats with Greece and all sorts of other extraneous things which are still cluttering up the Conservatives' attempt to get across the kind of straightforward, we've got, uh, you know, an economic plan, we're sticking to the plan, and Labour are going to put that at risk. But you know, take this James Cleverly appointment. He was made the Home Secretary by Rishi uh, Sunak. You know, he had a a moment in the debates in Parliament last week where we were talking about how you can have those moments when there's silence and you say something and it cuts through. And I don't think James cleverly intended uh, the word shithole linked to Stockton um, to be a a story. That was a a screw up. But... You better explain. So there was a Labour MP who asked... Like, you know, why is youth unemployment high in my constituency? And then in that kind of moment of silence that sometimes happens in the Commons, the Home Secretary says, because it's a shithole. Or well, that's what he's alleged to have said. And he, then he tried to he, claim he, he, he was says, saying just... the MP was the shit <laughs> rather than the place. <laughs> but is... I mean, stop digging. But the, the thing is, though, you then get to Saturday, Rwanda's not the be-all and end-all. We know cleverly thought the Rwanda policy was going to kind of a bit difficult because he'd actually referred to it privately as batshit. And uh, he's quite keen on his feces here he, as a he form is. of political insult. But you sort of feel with James Cleverly on Saturday when he says it's not the be all and end all. I mean, there is this guy. He didn't want to be Home Secretary. He was enjoying being Foreign Secretary. Suddenly is pulled out because David Cameron's coming back, put into this job. He doesn't want to go down hook, line and sinker about a policy he doesn't really believe in. So he says it's not the be all and end all. And then Rishi Sunak is, then has to deal with a revolt on the back benches against the Home Secretary he appointed just a few days ago, fueled, as you said, by the Immigration Minister. This has only happened because once Suella Braveman was sacked, Rishi Sunak put somebody in who didn't really believe in the policy. That was his decision. What was he doing? What they should be doing is trying to, again, draw a line against Labour on immigration. They want to be saying, borders are more secure under the Conservatives. We've got a plan to try and reduce migration and so on. They're allowing these internal arguments and these internal rows to overshadow things. I think it's quite hard to avoid at the moment in the Conservative Party with immigration because I think there are genuine differences of opinion and the policy is not working because it's been blocked by the courts. We discussed migration last week. But on the economy, I think you know they have got a reasonable story to tell. They've certainly got a reasonable plan. They had an autumn statement. They've cut national insurance. In fact, the vote is today. And that is what they should have spent the whole of this week talking about. 
So the week began with the government courting the world's biggest business leaders, the Steve Schwartzman, the great private equity king, came over. The uh, chief executive of Goldman Sachs uh, was here. And they were all at a big conference at Hampton Court Palace, which was supposed to sell Britain. So, you know, like not literally, well, literally sell Britain, try and get these uh, different companies and uh, investment funds to invest in Britain. And everyone I spoke to who was connected with the event said it actually went really well. There's a new business person in number 10 called Frank Pettiger, who used to be a Morgan Stanley banker, and he has brought real professionalism to that operation. And then we got the news later in the week that all of this is very much required because the OECD, uh, this international body based in Paris, published a report written by Claire Lombardelli, who I mentioned earlier, who was used to be my private secretary. She's now chief economist of the OECD. And they forecast that the UK would have some of the weakest growth in the advanced world in the next uh, couple of years. It's only going to grow by, according to their forecast, 0.5%. And um, in general, the UK is performing pretty poorly compared to our main competitors. And it begs a kind of broader question, which is, you know, why is it that the British economy is struggling when others, particularly the US, are really pulling ahead now? I'm sure the summit was really good. But uh, as we discussed a moment ago, it was kind of overshadowed by, first of all, migration rows and then Greek rows. Uh, but even the Financial Times, you know, the big economic global newspaper didn't put anything about the investment summit on its front page on Monday morning. And you know what it's like. If the FT doesn't think the big investment conference is important enough to have a story about, then the rest of the newspapers um, kind of follow suit. And it didn't get a huge amount of coverage. They'll be kicking themselves for that. Because as you say, this is such a a big deal. It's not just that um, the short-term growth forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility and the OECD are for quite slow growth next year and the year after in election year, it's that the underlying growth of our economy has been so much weaker over the last 15 years since the financial crisis, and that's happened around the world. And the OBR, the independent forecasters, last week in the autumn statement said they are downgrading their medium-term view of uh, growth for the future. We had a question about this from Liam. Last week, you were discussing the consensus among some politicians and some economists that immigration is good for the economy. But how can you square that theory with the latest figures from the OBR and the ONS that show record high migration, but really stagnant growth forecasts? Shouldn't one help or counteract the other? Now, the answer, Liam, is if it wasn't for the migration in the Office of Budget Responsibility numbers projected for the next five years, growth would be even slower than the 1.6% a year that they are forecasting. Let me just explain to people, migra- you know, if you bring more people into the country, it just increases the GDP, There's a, assuming they're working. That, that, that's, a, that's a sort of almost mechanical function of how you calculate GDP. That's, that's right. right. So the growth in the economy will be... Um, what is happening to um, to investment, to capital investment, how many people are working, and then how people and investment combine together, which is what productivity really is, to deliver kind of more goods and services and more income for everybody. And um, if there's more people, then output or GDP per capita can be slower. But for the government and for tax revenues, it's actually the underlying growth of the whole economy, which really makes the difference. When we came into government in 1997, the forecast at the time was for underlying growth to be 2.5% a year. We revised it down to 2 quarter, and then it went back up to 2.5%. And that had been the historic pattern. Since the financial crisis, so it started under Labour, and then during your time as Chancellor and since, the underlying growth, despite migration, the underlying growth of the economy because of weaker productivity has just been much much slower. And this isn't a British phenomenon. It's been happening all over the developed world. America, France, Germany, everybody has seen this mystifying slowdown in the ability of our economy to But then to more grow. recently, I would say the US economy 
is starting to buck that rather negative trend. Well, maybe. And, and you, you're beginning to see, not, not as vibrant a US economy as you, perhaps you saw in the 1990s or the 1980s, but it's certainly pulling away. We discussed this on one of the earlier shows. That's true in terms European of short-term economies. growth, but in terms of the underlying growth potential, it's still the case that the American economy, all big economies, so what's the, are growing. What, what do we think is the explanation for well, this? Well, economists say... It's a puzzle. Nobody fully understands it. You'd have thought with all of, you know, technological change, the internet, the beginning of AI, that would have been boosting growth through technology, but doesn't seem to be happening. Interestingly, if you look at Britain, we've been slightly less good than other economies, but all economies have suffered this. It's actually been London and the southeast which has done less well in the last 10 years, not the rest of the country. And these sectors which have seen a big slowdown in their productivity have been the high-performing ones. So it's been tech, financial services, pharmaceuticals. They're the ones who, for reasons nobody quite understands, have been growing less fast than they were in the previous 20 years. There are some potential explanations. Let's go through, for example, very briefly, those three sectors. So in pharmaceuticals, regulation around pharmaceuticals means it just takes a lot longer and it's vastly more expensive to bring modern drugs to market. And then if you look at finance, as a result of the financial crash, we now require banks to hold much, much more cash, much more capital. And so they are less productive for every pound they hold. And that's, again, government regulation. And on technology, maybe we're on the cusp of something really big with AI, but you could argue you know, when the iPhone was invented back in, I think it was 2008 was the very first iPhone, wasn't it? Or around there back then. You know, that was revolutionary. And ever since then, you know, you've had kind of quite marginal improvements to technology. So I think there you can not- look to causes. But if you're, if you're sitting where we used to sit in the Treasury, what do you actually do about all this? Because you can't, you know, it's not like you're going to invent the medicines or the or the technology. So what can government do to create the right conditions for more productive growth? I actually think there's a big thing here, which is that we've had over the last 15 years, a global financial crisis, a huge shock. Then you've had in Britain, Brexit. And then we've also had a global pandemic. And we've also had war in Europe. All of those things make it harder for businesses to take a medium-term view, to invest for the long term. It makes everybody a bit more risk-averse. And and maybe if we get to some more stability, things will start to improve. And, you know, if you um, look at the purpose of the investment conference on Monday, the government was trying to say, we have a more stable long-term environment. Come and invest back here in Britain. Yeah, but a lot of those businesses are taking the view that there's probably going to be a Labour government in a year's time. Doesn't mean they're right, but that's certainly the view they're taking. And lots of them turned up at a breakfast that uh, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer rather cunningly organised in the offices of uh, EY, the consultancy firm. It meant that quite a few of the businesses were actually late for the government uh, meeting. Uh, they, they were like, where are they all? Oh, they're meeting the Labour Party. That got more <laughs> coverage than the actual summit, I think. <laughs> but uh, not noticed because of uh, a lot of the rows that are affecting the government at the moment is that the Labour Party's growth plan what they call its green prosperity plan, is also under quite a lot of pressure. And their sums don't really add up because Jeremy Hunt did what we predicted he was going to do, which is he spent all of the headroom so that debt is just falling, national debt's just falling, and he spent it on his tax cut, which Labour are going to vote for today in the House of Commons, the National Insurance Cup. And that means that they don't have any way to fund the £28 billion green prosperity plan which they announced at the party conference last year. They've already watered down the timing of when they say they're going to pay it, but they still have not found any way to make the sums add up. And uh, Peter Kyle, who's a big star in the shadow cabinet, the shadow industry secretary, on the uh, TV this morning, he was struggling to explain how he's going to pay for his warm homes plan to insulate millions of homes because Labour have started to spend the $28 billion. They've, they've gone around saying we're going to spend the money on uh, offshore wind farms and doing up ports. You know, the £600 million is going to go to local authorities, uh, £2 billion on a battery plant. They're spending the money and they haven't found a way yet to explain how they're going to pay for it. Are they going to raise taxes? Are they going to cut spending elsewhere? Are they going to borrow more? And at the moment, it's a bit of a sitting target. If I was doing my old job as Shadow Chancellor, I'd be saying, I'm a year out from an election, I can still fix this. 
but I need to start fixing it fast because if the Conservatives do get their act together, if they do focus on the economy, they will start to deliver a laser focus on this hole in the Labour spending plan. This is a a classic um, dilemma of being an opposition politician because uh, in government you can announce something at a budget and then you can do another budget a year later or two years later. But in opposition, once you say something, it's there and it's quite hard to resolve from it. And the $28 billion, um, was said by Rachel Rees, the Shadow Chancellor, a couple of years ago when there was less expectation of a Labour government. And as she's become closer to the election, more of a focus on, well, how do those sums add up? And as we predicted on this podcast a few weeks ago, Jeremy Hunt was always going to try and squeeze her room for manoeuvre as much as he possibly could. I think what she's saying is that the priority is getting the national debt to fall before any extra borrowing to pay for this green investment plan. And therefore, of the £28 if she could only afford £1 and meet her fiscal rule, that's all she's going to do. And that does leave a kind of question, you know, what's the growth plan? Absolutely. But I think what she's not going to do is fall into the trap of saying that she will borrow more than her fiscal rules allow. I agree she's not going to fall into that trap, but then you can't have shadow cabinet members going around announcing, you know, they're spending X hundred million on this, X billion on that. You talked about discipline earlier. This is all about discipline. There was a tweet this morning from Jeremy Hunt. There's a fundamental dishonesty in Labour's plan. They can't support our tax cuts and borrow an extra 28 billion a year and get debt falling. It's time to tell us how the sums add up. And then the very good response from um, former advisor to the Conservatives, a few years back, Sam Friedman. There's a fundamental dishonesty in the government's plan. They're proposing massive public sector cuts, but will not tell us how they plan to achieve them. Cut the police, release prisoners, let more councils go bankrupt. When will they tell us? I think in that exchange, you see the election debate to come. Although we did have an interesting question here from Matt about who exactly Rachel Reeves is going to be up against uh, when they debate these big issues coming up to the election. Matt asks this, Hi, George and Ed, do you think the rumours that Rishi Sunak will make Claire Coutinho Chancellor before the next election are true? Are there any reasons he would, besides just trying to deny Rachel Reeves the claim of being the UK's first female Chancellor? Thanks, Matt. So Claire Coutinho is a rising star in the cabinet, been very close to Rishi Sunak, uh, used to work for him. She's now the energy secretary, and there's a lot of talk that uh, he'd like her to be the chancellor. Personally, I think it's there's only one circumstance in which I can imagine Jeremy Hunt going before the election, because I think he's had a good autumn statement, and he's doing what the government should be doing, which is focusing on the economy. And that is if he thinks he's going to lose his constituency in Surrey, he's going to be defeated by local Liberal Democrats. He's, he's facing Liberal Democrats. It's always been quite a marginal seat. I think if he took the view, you know what, I might lose this seat. Why don't I just retire now from politics? I've been chancellor. I've done all these other cabinet jobs. So I'm announcing that I'm stepping down as an MP. That then gives Sunak the reason to say, thank you very much, Jeremy, and we're going to have a uh, chancellor who can take us into the general election and beyond because I'm sure I'm going to win it. And in which case, I think he would appoint Claire Coutinho. I think that's unlikely because I think Jeremy would rather go down fighting in Surrey where he's feels he's been a good local MP. But that's probably the only situation I can imagine, uh, barring something we've not thought of, that um, will uh, lead to a change of Chancellor. Well, I should think Rachel Rees will think that um, it's about time we had a woman Chancellor's Exchequer because it's long overdue. And if it turns out not to be her, because Rishi Sunak does this at the, the last minute, I don't think she'll particularly be bothered about not having that accolade. And to be honest, another Chancellor. I mean, there have been so many over the last few years, I would be Seven very, since 2015. I, I think I'm, I count as number one in that uh, list. I would be very surprised if this is going to be in any way uh, destabilising for um, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, not least because they know the whole country will say Claire who, because uh, nobody knows who Claire Coutinho is at, at the moment and there won't be time for her to put her stamp. It will just be, in the end, another Rishi Sunak move. And I think what Rachel Reeves will be thinking about is Am I going to be in the Treasury and what are my plans and how are we going to deal with this very, very difficult inheritance? And what we're going to talk about next after the break is whether or not the Prime Minister is blocking 
the normal talks the opposition has with the civil service to start preparing for a change of government should those talks be underway. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. So here's a bit of a mystery. Before every general election, certainly since the 1960s, the opposition party, whether it's Labour or Conservatives and sometimes Liberal Democrats, have been able to talk to the civil servants, which they're not normally allowed to do, about their plans should they form the government. And the Prime Minister allows these talks to happen, but it's become a formality. And John Major, back in the 92-97 Parliament, allowed these talks to start 16 months before the parliament was due to end. Uh, In the uh, Cameron parliament, 2010 to 2015, that I was involved in the government then, David Cameron allowed the talks to start with Ed Miliband and you, Ed, in uh, some 15 months before the general election. Well, we're now 14 months before the last possible date for the general election. And as far as we can see, maybe you know better than me, the talks have not started. So either the Conservatives in government have said, we're not allowing the talks to start, which, if that's true, I think is really foolish. Or the Labour Party haven't asked for the talks to start, which is also, in my view, quite foolish. So what's going on here? Well, it's a bit of a mystery, and I don't think many people have focused on it yet. Well, I don't know um, if they are. The last time I spoke to Sue Gray, the chief of staff to Keir Starmer, former senior civil servant, it was actually at a, a memorial lunch for Jeremy Hayward, former cabinet secretary who passed away just a couple of years ago. The talks weren't underway. Uh, And there was a report this week in the Times which had a source saying that Rishi Sunak had told the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, that he didn't want the talks to start. Although the same article in the Times said that maybe Labour hadn't asked. And you can sort of see, on the one hand, does the Prime Minister um, want to give the impression that change is happening? He might be cautious about that. I think that's a wrong decision from his point of view. It might be that Labour is worrying about... um, giving the impression of, you know, starting to measure up the curtains, being complacent. Certainly back um, in that period in 1996, uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were very superstitious. Labour had been in opposition for 18 years. They didn't want to start those conversations themselves. Uh, I was contacted by the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, Terry Burns, what turned out to be over a year before the general election. And we agreed that we would start talks about talks, if you like. We would have a conversation about the things Terry would talk to Gordon about at his first meeting. It then became clear after a couple of months, we were meeting at least once a week, sometimes for two or three hours, talking about all sorts of different aspects of policy and how the Treasury worked and preparation, that it wasn't very likely this Gordon meeting was going to happen anytime soon. But it sort of didn't get in the way of the conversations we had. And Jonathan Powell was playing the same role with uh, Robin Butler, the cabinet secretary. Blair and Brown were quite cautious about the signal they would send, but they were happy for us to get on and and do it. So I I had these talks as well, which I thought were kind of moderately useful. And that's not to do a disservice to the officials at the Treasury. But 
I felt in the conversations I had with Nick McPherson, the formal meetings I had with Nick McPherson, which started actually on a very snowy day, and he turned up in Wellington boots in my office in the Commons, took them off, and he was wearing big shooting socks underneath. I thought, who's this eccentric character who's turned up to have to have I these thought it would be quite familiar. Well, yeah, but not, shooting socks. No, the, 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 you've got to talk to the new foreign secretary about that kind of background. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, Notting Hill. We didn't have those uh, shooting socks when I was growing up, and we we had interesting conversations about you know how many special advisors I'd bring, whether we'd have an economic advisors council, you know, where I actually wanted to work if I was chances. But they're they're very very second order issues. Uh, where things got really interesting is when. I wanted to create a chief economic advisor from the outside, bring in a high-powered American economist who actually ultimately couldn't come for family reasons. And there, both Nick McPherson and Mervyn King, governor of the bank at the time, were very helpful in having the conversations with that economist before the general election. The other thing that was going on is that if anyone thinks that the only contact between the civil service and the opposition is happening in these formal meetings. That's a mistake. I, I, I found myself invited to various sort of dinners, and lo and behold, Jeremy Hayward would also be invited. He was then working at number 10, or lo and behold, some other key treasury official would turn up. So there was, there's, there's informal contact. The British state starts to take a view on who's likely to win the election. And if they think the opposition has got a good chance, they will be finding all sorts of ways to find out what those plans are, and by the way, to bring to the opposition's attention how valuable these officials can be. Back in that 96-97, the most controversial things we didn't talk about. So I had no conversations with Terry Burns about making the Bank of England independent because we just didn't want that in any way to leak or to be a problem. We didn't talk about the details of the windfall tax on the privatised utilities. In his meeting with Gordon, the main conversation Terry and Gordon had, because Gordon didn't want to talk about anything, uh, was Gordon's eyesight and what size font Gordon would like on papers. Uh, And Terry brought three different examples and Gordon picked Arial 14. um, And that was then the font for the next 10 years in the, you know, that, that was like the big moment. But actually what I was doing with Terry was we were always talking about process and preparing for the Gordon meeting rather than the detail of policy. But actually, we had said, for example, that we were going to have a comprehensive spending review after a year, in the first year. We were going to freeze the spending totals for the first two years. We were going to change the fiscal rules in a particular way. But we wanted to put immediate money into the health service in the first July budget. And I, with the budget director and the head of public spending and Terry, spent hours talking through how that could work and it was important about process, but it was also important about relationships. It meant that by the time we all arrived in the Treasury, I certainly knew the senior civil servants very well, and we could sort of hit the ground running. In the conversations I had with Nick McPherson in 2014-15, look, let's be honest, I didn't really think we were going to win anyway, and I knew them all. So we didn't need that sort of personal conversation. And Nick said to me, look, it will be tough, and if I were you... These are the following things I would be very sceptical about if I were you. High speed two, the new nuclear power station size well B, and pensions reform, because all of these, you know, potentially could be quite expensive. And you want to save the money. Those would be the things I'd put on your agenda. And I said, thanks very much, Nick. I'll reflect upon that. And then never had a chance to do anything well, I was told, about it. But Ed, I was told on the day I became Chancellor, cancel Crossrail, now the Elizabeth Line. They said that's a Labour project that's way too expensive, hasn't been started yet. Cancel the uh, Crick Institute at uh, King's Cross, big science place, and cancel the Tate Modern Extension. And I, I actually said no to all three of those. And thankfully, you can, <laughs> you can go you can go on the Elizabeth Line, you can, sciences are happening at the Crick Centre and the Tate Modern Extension is pretty good. So, But the, uh, look, I think the, let's just bring po- it back to the modern Fine. here and now. Why the Labour politicians are more experienced of government. I mean, Keir Starmer had been a permanent secretary himself when he was director of public prosecutions than either I was or you were. So they've got that experience, but I still think they should be starting the talks. And if you're Rishi Sunak, I think there's a sort of theme to what we've been talking about today, which is, you know, don't worry uh, or get frustrated or petulant or uh, irritated by the opposition doing things that make it look like they're an alternative government. And whatever you do, don't give them a bigger platform to play that. So don't have a row about having talks with the civil service because they're going to happen anyway. Don't let 
Keir Starmer be the only person who meets the Greek Prime Minister when he comes to Britain? And don't worry that business leaders want to go off to a summit with the shadow chancellor as well as the chancellor. And if you show your frustration at those things, in fact, Gordon Brown quite often shows frustration at me when I was shadow chancellor doing those sorts of things. And it only worked to my advantage in opposition. And so if I was Rishi Sunak, I would say tomorrow. You know what? If they want to start these talks, they can start tomorrow. I agree. And I referred to Sue Gray at the beginning. And uh, Sue Gray understands how government works in a way that um, very few shadow cabinet ministers will. She won't want to get into the details of uh, discussions, nor will Rachel Reeves about a tax rise here or borrowing there. But Keir Starmer has said he wants to drive his government with his five missions. And he wants that to be at the centre of the way a Labour government works. And that is a conversation about the way Whitehall works, departments are organised, the way in which delivery is monitored, which Sue Gray could get into a detailed conversation about now, because if they're going to deliver those missions, they need to be working on them from the first day. And that's the kind of preparatory work they can do. And, you know, I don't think John Major felt like he lost anything. In fact, Ken Clark at the time said to Nick McPherson, I know Ken Clark was the Chancellor in 1996, of course you should start these talks because that is what good government is all about. And we, as parliamentarians and custodians of good government, should always want a transition to work well. That is the John Major, Ken Clark gold standard. And uh, I hope Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt might learn a little bit from them. I very much agree with that. So on to your questions. Thanks for sending them in. We love hearing from you. And uh, here's the first one from Karen. Uh, She's got a question on national insurance. I appreciate the history of the 1911 Insurance Act being introduced to raise money for our pensions. Is this money ring-fenced by the Exchequer to pay specifically for these? Or is both the national insurance and income tax put into one big pot to cover all benefits and government spending? If so, would it not be better to simplify matters to raise money just using one taxation mechanism rather than the two that we currently have? So there's a a very good question, Karen. The truth is that uh, the money that comes from national insurance used to be ring-fenced for things like uh, pensions and sickness benefits when it was first introduced by Lloyd George. These days, it all essentially goes into a central pot, although how much national insurance you pay does affect your entitlement to the basic state pension. I certainly looked at merging these two taxes. I think every chancellor who's been there for a few years looks at merging the two taxes. It's much, much harder than it sounds because they, although they look similar and they are both taxes on income, one only applies to working age people, doesn't apply to pensioners. That's national insurance. National insurance is charged on weekly income, not on annual income. And so if you have lots of small jobs, you might uh, be worse off if the two systems were merged. It looks like a good idea on paper. And then it, unless you spent many, many billions of pounds to sort of ease the reform and cut taxes in the process, it's not something that's easy to pull off. Look, that's definitely right, Karen. Um, Of course, you wouldn't start from here. If you were starting from scratch, you wouldn't have a complicated system. But it's complicated because it's grown up and evolved over many hundreds of years. And if we were suddenly to say, okay, we're just going to merge income tax and national insurance, aside from any politics of that, it would mean suddenly pensioners were paying national insurance tax in the merged new tax on all their savings. But they would say that's really unfair. So what we need to do about that? Well, in that case, why, why don't we have an exemption for pensioners on that part of income tax, which used to be national insurance? The moment you've done that, you've made your simple system more complicated again. And I think every chancellor who looks at this concludes it will either be really painful or really costly or just make things really complicated. And that's why you stick with the status quo. Next question from Arvnish, who asks... Hi, Ed and George. Do you have any non-obvious advice on public speaking? The only piece of advice I give is that I think it's useful to have in your head a very, very simple structure, even if you've got the text in front of you, that you can remember. You're going to make three points, and here's the first point, here's the second point, here's the third point. I think if you have a complex speech structure that doesn't have an obvious beginning and end and a couple of bits in the middle, you get lost and your audience gets lost. And generally, speeches are better when they're delivered you know, without notes, And it's almost impossible to remember a speech without notes unless you have that sort of clear structure. It sounds a really obvious point to make, but 
so many speeches, I was both a speechwriter and a speech giver, don't have simple structures and they meander and uh, you lose uh, your audience as a result. Well, my advice, Avnish, is that um, anybody who tells you making speeches is easy because they find it easy is um, giving you a bum steer. Because actually, it's a hard thing to do to stand up in front of an audience, whether it's 20 people or 5,000 people, and speak to them publicly. And it's something that you learn. And you learn it partly by doing it, but you also learn it by finding what works for you. And you have to discover that for yourself. And anybody who says, well, do it that way, because it works for me, well, may not work for you. And we all have sort of different kind of things about us. So I have a, a stammer. Took me a long time to learn how to speak with a stammer. And I learned things which are important for me. So I learned that I didn't like to use a text because reading from a text was very hard. As it happens, any sentence starting with an H is a total a nightmare. But I also learned some things where if I arrive at an event and I walk into a room and I'm late and I have to go straight onto the stage, that's a nightmare. I always want to be in the room with people for five minutes to kind of feel part of it. When I was in the cabinet, I used to ask, um, I spoke at loads of teachers' conferences, and often there'd be thousands of people. I would ask to spend half an hour with four or five teachers chosen by the particular group I was going to talk to and just chat with them about issues in their lives as teachers, tell them some of the things I was going to say in my speech. And what that meant was when I went onto the stage, although there was 5,000 people there, I was kind of speaking to them and I could think of them and personalise it those were things I learned which worked for me, and but they may not work for everybody else. But you have to do it and maybe do it with friends or do it in a smaller environment first. Find the things which work for you and know that your confidence will grow and you'll get better as you keep doing it. And, you know, I bet George's first speech wasn't as good as, as his last and the same was definitely true I for think my first, my first speech is Shadow Chancellor in the House of Commons. I got up. Gordon Brown was the chancellor. He'd seen off, I think, six or seven former shadow chancellors, people like Michael Portillo and Francis Maud and Michael Howard, big figures. I was only 33 years old. I got up and I thought I'd start on a really sort of friendly gesture, which was to congratulate him on being the MP for a new constituency, which was which I called Kirkcaldy and Cowden Beath. And I said, can I congratulate the right honourable gentleman becoming the new MP for Kirkcaldy, at which point... A Labour MP shout out, it's Kerkoddy, you southern twat. And that was the end of my speech. <laughs> shadow that was the, I thought I was about to be the eighth shadow chancellor he'd seen off. Dealing with hecklers is an important part of the learning about speech making and uh, also learning to really, really enjoy telling jokes. That's a great thing to, to learn. It takes a lot of time. That moment when you know your punchline's funny and you pause and let the whole audience think, what's he going to say? and then hit the line. It's really fun, but it takes time. One final piece of advice, Avnish, is if you're going to mention people in speeches, or indeed in interviews, make sure you get their name right, because this is a classic from Elon Musk in the last 24 hours. So I will certainly not pander. And Jonathan, like, the only reason I'm here is because you were a friend. You're not making was, any... First exactly. of all, I'm Andrew, but... Uh, yeah, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I, I have I have had that happen to me a few times, especially if you don't do notes. Sometimes your head can just get things wrong. I was doing once, it was a CBI conference in um, Reading and I was talking and talking to them and I used the phrase, you know, it's great to be here near Oxford, Heathrow, the Thames Gateway. And I said this, apparently, I had no idea, the Thames Gateway, which of course is East London, on the other side of the country, really. And finally, after about, I'd said it five times, somebody stood up in the middle of my speech and said, I can't stand it any longer. It's the Thames Corridor, not the Thames Gateway. And the whole 200 people burst into applause. And I sat there thinking, well, I fucked that up. Yes. Mind you, Barack Obama went through a whole G8 calling me Jeffrey rather than George. So, yes, so I've, I've been at on the receiving he, end of that. At least he didn't call you Bungle. No, he did not. 
Thanks so much for all the questions and comments you've sent in this week. In a few weeks' time, we'll be recording a Christmas Q&A. So please send in your questions. They can be about the economy and politics, but you can also make them festive. You can ask us questions about the worst Christmas crises or what you think Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer should be getting for Christmas in their stockings. Anything, bit of festive fun, but some serious politics there as well. Send those questions in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Georgia, just come across my phone on the BBC website. Former Chancellor Alistair Darling dies aged 70. The BBC is reporting after a short spell in hospital. Terribly sad news that Alistair Darling's died. Well, that is totally shocking. Sorry, I'm a bit of a loss for words. I mean, I didn't even know he was ill, to be honest. I didn't at all. Um, I mean, he was my opposite number. He was Chancellor, I was Shadow Chancellor. And he was always so polite and straightforward with me. He was not at all tricksy. And I think what Alistair Darling will be remembered for is someone who brought out the best of politics, you know, softly spoken, intelligent, always trying to do the right thing, not always reaching for the political point scoring. And I think you'll be able to point to two moments in Alistair's career where he made a big difference for our country's future. In the financial crisis, he was the chance exchequer who earned a lot of trust with the way he handled that crisis. And I say that as someone who was against him at the time. And second, the Scottish referendum, where he led the campaign to keep the United Kingdom together. So it's totally shocking news, but he leaves a really, really powerful legacy that he and his family can be enormously proud of. It's true. When you think back to the financial crisis and the scale of what he was dealing with as chancellor, the the potential massive risk, not just to the economy, but to people's livelihoods and their jobs. And he managed all of that, managing the relationship with Number 10 and with counterparts around the world with a a calmness and a dependability, a stability. I mean, it's hard to think if anybody could have have managed such complexity with such assuredness. And um, I mean, he was always a really funny man. Um, he had this very, very wry sense of humour and um, he was always fabulous to to be with. And people think of Alistair as being the politician who was brought in to sort of calm things down, to to take something out of the news when he went to, to transport or to the trade industry department to, to calm things down. But actually, I mean, he was very passionate. I worked with him particularly closely in the run-up to the 97 election when he was working very closely with Gordon Brown and the Shadow Treasury team. He really wanted to change things. I mean, actually, Alistair, underneath that calmness, he was a radical. He thought things could be better. He thought he could change things for the better. He was a reformer, and he had very, very strong moral code. He had a real sense of right and wrong, and he never tolerated, I don't think, people around him in the Treasury who... We're going to play fast and loose with the rules. He thought there was a right way to do things. And, uh, you know, a good, moral public servant. I think it's true that when you know people die, and I'm still in complete shock that Alistair's gone, that people say all the nice things about him. But the thing about Alistair Darling is people said nice things about Alistair to his face when he was alive, and they say nice things about him now that he's so tragically passed. And he is a great British public servant. You know, he is someone who served his country in Parliament, in many cabinet jobs, was there at crucial moments in our history, like the financial crash, came out of political retirement to try and keep the United Kingdom together in that referendum. And I think many people who've had political careers will look at Alistair's and say, gosh, I wish I could achieve half of what he achieved. And uh, he's one of those people, I think, whose reputation will just grow and grow as people remember the contribution he made. That's right. He uh, he had two kids, but they were never in the public domain. He kept his family very private. But he and his wife, Maggie, were a great team. And you know, she understood politics and does understand politics, very knowledgeable and a great support to him. And um, you know, I know the conversations that Yvette and I have had with both of them over the years. I just learned a huge amount from Alistair Darling. And there's a right way to do politics and uh, Alistair Darling did politics the right way and made a difference. And in the end, at the end of a life, at the end of a political career, what you want people to say is it was a good thing they were there. They made a difference. They made things better. 
And uh, you can say that about Alistair Darling. Right. On that very, very sad note, we end this week's uh, podcast and we will see you next Thursday. See you next Thursday. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.